Good morning. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast. Free Press Media Press Inc. and Alternative Parties Books Publisher sponsors this podcast. I'm Andrew Bouchard. Welcome to the Long Live Alternative Parties podcast, friends. Today we have another exciting guest on the podcast, like we always do. This person today, his name is Sean McGrath, and he is a political campaign expert. He's done a number of things, which we're going to talk about in a second. And he is going to tell us his background and experience and what he's done. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How about yourself? I am doing very well. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to spending a few, little bit of time with you today. We're glad to have you. Normally now I would ask our interview guests to give a background sketch. In this case, Mr. McGrath here gave me a sheet beforehand, so I am going to touch on the highlights of his background. Mr. McGrath has been involved as a political consultant for both alternative parties and the two parties. He has served as a county party chairman, a state committee man, an advisor to a U.S. presidential candidate, and he has also spoken at in the United States, in Hong Kong, in Korea, in Africa, and he has a master's degree. So we look forward to hearing all that you learned from those experiences, Sean. You bet, Andrew. Thank you. It's so interesting thanks. to me. Just just jump in real quick. It's interesting. I'll tell you, my political career started shortly after I graduated college. I'm dating myself now. Graduated oh. in, in 1989. So okay. I actually began my political career in 1990, the year after that. So I've uh, been, oh. been doing it for a little while now. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is a while. In 1990, I was about 12. So that was <laughs> interesting. There you go. Give you some context. So you, you spoke in Africa. Where in Africa? Uh, down in, mostly in southern, uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Oh. Um, it's down there, yeah. Like South Africa? Uh, actually Zimbabwe. In, oh, um, Zimbabwe. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. In fact, last time I was there was in 1987, and apartheid was still raging, and, uh, so many of the ANC members were up in Zimbabwe, because, of course, they oh. were, um, exiles from South Africa, so I uh, had a chance to spend time with a lot of those uh, ANC higher-up members who uh, who fled for obvious reasons, um, and that was really an eye-opening experience, especially for someone coming from, you know, we had our own challenges with race, and yeah. we're starting to see a lot of that even now, but back in the, back in the 80s, it was pretty tepid in America. So then when I went to Africa and I saw that, it was pretty amazing uh, to see and pretty eye-opening all the way around. Wow. So they they invited you in to give them consultancy? No, not back then, man. I was uh, I was just young back then. So uh, it was more, more for me, it was um, an opportunity to talk a little bit about what our system is like and what it's like. But uh, quite frankly, I was on a learning, a learning tour there. Oh, okay. Spent three months over there um, having a lot of fun, of course, but also learning simultaneously. Oh, my. And Zimbabwe has changed a lot since then, too. I went there oh. after after the 
around 2010 is when I went there, and 2012 is when I went there. So it is it changed a lot too. Wow. So you went there a long enough. Mugabe was president when I was there and when you were there. So yeah. yes, yes, good point. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it was interesting and unfortunate to watch that uh, that economic collapse. It was very interesting to watch that economic collapse as it relates just to currency, if you're a fan of currency, um, and or you know just watching how a country can implode. Uh, Zimbabwe tended to be the breadbasket of certainly sub-Saharan Africa. Um, yes. It's just very vibrant farming community, um, good agricultural exports, and uh, boy, that that collapsed pretty quickly in terms of a nation. And, uh, yes, unfortunately. Really unfortunately, yeah, for sure. That's yeah. another show for another time. Actually, when I did my master's degree, I, I've got a master's degree in diplomacy because oh. I knew that would be such a highly sought-after field. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but when I did my uh, my thesis, I did it on uh, Africa. And, of course, in this case, I did it on Rwanda and some of the violence oh. in that area. But... Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time just international diplomacy and international negotiations. Wow. So how has that informed the way you approach American politics? Um, well, I think if anything, it's 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 probably um, it makes me a little bit more aware of cultural sensitivities. And by that, I mean aware and acceptance of. In other words, um, we live in a very free society here in America yes. where we can really hammer one another, we can go after each other politically, and we do that, of course. It's getting – the vitriol is pretty high right now. Uh, yes. It has been over these last two presidential cycles. But um, uh, And the anger now is starting to heat up to where it's one side versus the other. But when I was coming up in the early 90s, there was always a dichotomy between, um, you know, between conservative and liberal, et cetera, but it was never really, it was very congenial insofar huh. as you would definitely campaign against your opponent. Um, there were certain lines you didn't cross then that we've obliterated now. Um, and at the end of the day, you always knew that you had to work with these people if you were elected to figure out how do we govern ourselves with limited resources, right? So you have limited resources of money, limited resources all the way around. And you have yeah. to still, at the end of the day, the goal is, ostensibly, the goal was you were you were striving to become a servant, someone who wants to get into the political arena in order to affect change, right? So at the end of the day, you're campaigning, and this was, again, in the 90s, this was my philosophy, and this is sort of the way it was, uh, that people genuinely wanted to get in to politics because they wanted to effectuate change at some level in public policy. And so policy, you had to understand policy when you ran for office. Today, you seldom ever have substantive policy discussions and or debates. Oh, and no. even even when you're in office, one of the biggest challenges we have today is and one of the biggest challenges your generation, my children's generation, is going to face, is having people with substantive understanding of public policy. For example, water rights and how do water rights actually work? Um, as you have that that resource that's dwindling, 
And so you need a lot of people with some expertise there and a willingness to go back, study, learn, understand as a public policy, and then say, let's have a, let's have a debate on how should we, uh, how should we manage this public resource? Don't privatize it, although some people will want to privatize it. Um, how do we manage that in a public, uh, in a public setting? So it's really important, and I still believe this, if you're running for office today, it is vitally important that you educate yourself on public policy, on the situations where you want to make a difference, whether that's on environment, whether it's on uh, the economy, whether you want to, want to have a better handle on understanding currency and how currency affects trade, how it affects our livelihoods, right, the economy. You really do have to have some substance if you're going to go in there and actually effectuate change. Um, and that, I think, is more and more lacking as political candidates come through the party system. Um, we can talk about party system stuff if you'd like to, but as you come through a party system, oftentimes it's a popularity contest, not a who's the best qualified candidate. And that yeah. is a very troubling situation for us today. Yeah. So, Sean, you wrote a book. Can you please tell our audience what the book is called and what it's about? So the book is called, <laughs> back in 2010, I, uh, I wrote it out. It's called How to Win. And it's really just this strategic roadmap to help you raise money, to help you get votes, to help you craft your message, and um, ultimately to help you win elections. And so um, that book was mostly I did that as a calling card. Uh, and let me tell you how I got there. So this is in 2010. Obviously, I started politics in 1990. And I started in the party system. So uh, I became an expert um, over time understanding how party systems work, the GOP versus the Democrat, right? So you have the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. Those are the two major parties in our, in our culture, of course. Um, and I came up through the Republican Party. The Republican Party was very different then than it is now. Obviously, all parties change, all people change, things like that over time. But the party apparatus, the system, the process, the expectation – was very different if you were elected as a precinct committee officer back in the day. Back in the day as a precinct committee officer, which is the ground level, if you will, um, soldier, foot soldier, for the party system itself, for the party apparatus, if you were elected as a precinct committee officer in your area, you were expected to go door to door and get to know your neighbors. And you, were, you had a precinct that you were elected to, and your job was to go out and canvas, connect with, share information in this precinct. And that little precinct, if you put all of them together, compromises the district. And then you put those dis districts together, and that creates the, you know, in, they're all within the county. And then you have your county, your multiple counties in each state, that comprises the state. So when you look at, uh, when you look at the party apparatus, the party apparatus is broken down from the, for example, the National Republican Party, and it goes to the states. They're made up of all the state chairmen. All the state chairmen have committee, uh, county committee officers who report to the state. And at the county level, you have precinct officers who report to the county officials. So you have the grassroots folks, the guys on the ground were grassroots people who would go out, knock on doors, connect with people. And really, ultimately, what you were doing is you were just trying to build up your base from the ground up. Huh. 
Today we don't do that as much, uh, the, or we. I'm not no longer part of the party, but today they just don't do that as much. Most people don't know their neighbors. They don't want to take the time to go knocking on doors, and they're not going to do it. And so you've, you've lost a lot of the face-to-face connection that you used to have, which also means you lost a lot of the accountability that you used to have huh. with, um, with the political process. And so people are less connected to political parties today than they ever were. Oh, no. and, politi- and political parties now, candidates are less connected. Candidates themselves are less connected to the political parties, and political parties are less connected to the people which they ostensibly serve. Sure. So there's there's some there's some you know some negative ramifications to that um, because now a candidate you know if I'm running for office and I decide I want to run in my county as a Republican. I may or may not run through my county organization. If they offer me money, I might. If I like the way they stand on political issues, I might. But, boy, I don't have to now. Back in the day, back in the 90s, if you were going to run, let's just say, for example, you were going to run for office as a Republican in whatever county you're in, Arapahoe County, you generally had to go through the Arapahoe County Republican Party and get the, uh, the nod from that party, which means your election cycle was a little bit different. Because the oh. first election that you had to win was the county party election. You had to win at the county level first in the party system. And then you went on to the, uh, the, the primary and then you went on to a general. So party systems had their place. And, boy, it was tough back in the day where you literally had to, yeah, definitely popularity mattered. Uh, but so did grassroots, grassroots networking. Um, debating within the party apparatus, there was some. Uh, the parties had a lot more um, interaction with the candidates, and a lot more account. The candidates had a lot more accountability to the parties. Okay. Today, they don't have that as much. So, since your book is called "How to Win," would you care to share some tips you learned about how parties can win and candidates can win in races if you don't, if you're comfortable sharing? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, it really depends. I mean, I, I talk to candidates all the time now um, that, you know, the, the first and foremost thing you want to do is, is figure out why you're running. Um, and, and that is, you know, what is what is your message going to be to the people that you desire to serve? Why are you running? What, do, what are you hoping to accomplish? Um, and once you start there, once you start with that, notion of this is what I want to do, this is how I want to serve, these are the people whom I think I can uh, connect with. Now you can start to craft your message, and I always tell people the most important thing you can do is craft a very strategic, unique message. What is it about you? So, Andrew, if you're going to run, what makes you better than any other person wanting to run for this position? Let's say you want to run for mayor in your town, right? Why, why, Andrew, should should the voters vote for you as opposed to Tom, Dick, or Harry, right? Fred, Susie, or Jim. Um, yeah. Pick a name, right? Whoever else is running for that office. Why should the voters choose you? So the very first thing you want to start with is why me, why now? Once you have that, and that takes time to think through that, why should people invest their time in you, invest their dollars in you, listen to you? they got a million and one things to listen to. Why should they listen yeah. to you? And what is it that you're going to bring to the table that's going to help me in my busy day, my busy life? What are you going to do for me? That's 
a lot of what people are going to be asking ultimately. So you have to figure out that core strategic position. What makes me unique in this race? And ultimately, what you really want to position yourself as the only logical choice. Okay. Ultimately, what you're looking for is, Andrew, why are you the only logical choice for the voters in this district for this position? And usually it's a public policy reason. It should be a public policy reason. It should be about why are you, um, what are you going to do for them to make their lives easier, to make their lives better, to make government work more efficiently and more effectively for them, or to make sure government doesn't work so, uh, doesn't, doesn't go so deep into their lives where we can extract a little bit of government uh, over um, bearing, if you will, into the – so what is your position? Where do you stand on issues as it relates to government, as it relates to, in your case, if you were running for mayor, how is the, the city services going to affect this, these people whom you want to vote for you? Make sense? Sure. So when you start yeah. with that strategic position, then you can start to say, okay, this is why people should vote for me. How am I going to do it? <laughs> How do I get from here, where I'm at today, to where I want to be? And that's a victory on election night. So if November 2nd is the election night, how do I go work backwards? So I always say put your, cat, put, put your confidence on paper. If you're confident you can win, put it down on paper and work backwards from election night to where you're at today. And we'll create a roadmap to get you to where you're going to be on election night, which is a victory. And what that means is that you'll actually have multiple elections between now and November. November is the general election. But prior to that, you'll have multiple primary elections, possibly party elections, etc. Okay. That sounds wise. Does that make sense? So you start with why, why are you running? What makes you unique? What is your ultimate strategic position in this? How is it that you're the only logical choice? And then what we do is design a campaign by working backwards from there. And this is work. Wow. This, you know, this isn't just I'm going to sit down and think about, oh, okay, I'm great because I'm happy and fun and i got a lot of energy. Uh, you're going to need a little more substance than that. Um, but when you do the work and you sit down and you start really going through, this is where I stand on these issues, this is why I'm going to be helpful for you or for you or whatever, you can also then begin to identify who you're speaking to. In a political campaign, in various stages of the campaign, you have different audiences that you're approaching. You are not talking to everybody because not everybody is going to vote for you. Yeah. In in today's political reality, you know, you probably have a lot of listeners who are third-party candidates, right? We're going to talk yeah. about that in a minute, I'm sure. But um, the challenge for a third-party candidate is that you have about a third of the population that is identifies as sort of Democrat or liberal. You have about a third of the population that identifies as Republican or conservative. And you have about a third of the population that probably doesn't identify either way. They don't really care. And so as a, as a candidate, if you're not part of the Democrat or Republican Party, you have, to, you have to figure out a way to appeal to those people that are in that party and have a message that appeals to them such that they can trust that when they vote for you versus a Republican, whom they're used to voting for, or a Democrat, whom they're used to voting for if they're part of that party, 
why they should vote for you as an independent or as a reform candidate or a Green Party candidate or whatever other party you're running on. Why should they vote for you? That's a message and that's a strategy that you're going to have to really work hard and think through uh, because you have a lot of deficits if you're running as an alternative candidate, alternative to the two-party system that we have. All right. So crafting your message comes back to, again, who are you? What makes you unique? Why should people vote for you? Why are you the only logical choice? Now, why are you the only logical choice versus uh, you should vote for me versus the Democrat who's running or you should vote for me versus the Republican that's running? And that is, again, an uphill battle because in America we are raised from ground one, from babies on, that it's a two-party system, you're either a Republican or you're a Democrat. And people identify with that. And so you have a really big uphill battle. That's why third party, third party, third parties are very, very, very difficult to break into in American politics. So would you, if someone didn't want to be part of the two parties, would you advise them to be an independent or to go with the alternative parties? Or would it depend on the factors of the case? Well, it totally depends on the situation and the time. In 1996, I served as an advisor for um, a former governor in Colorado. His name was Governor Richard Lamb. Governor Dick Lamb was a was a Democrat when he governed in Colorado. At that time, he was the longest-serving governor in Colorado. And he's a guy who I admired greatly. Now, again, he was in the Democrat Party. I was a Republican. But the reason I admired him so much is that he truly understood public policy and literally thinks about public policy on the daily. He's, he is one of those uh, public servants who genuinely tries to figure out how do we parcel out in a fair way the limited resources of government. Now, again, he and I differ on certain things, but um, but on a lot of stuff we, we were consistent on. And so um, when he ran for president in 1996, I became – a political advisor for him, and uh, he ran on the Reform Party ticket. Ah. Now, back in back in 1996, there was one major guy uh, who, if you thought of the Reform Party, you thought of Ross Perot. Yeah. Well, Dick, Dick Lamb ran against Ross Perot, and I was political advisor during that race. And Dick oh, and I, interesting. It was really fun. Governor Lamb and I spent a lot of time together on the road. And um, that was when the Reform Party was really facing its early challenge because you had Ross Perot that was championing this this new party, and he was fueling it with lots of his money and lots of energy. That just guy was a very um, uh, charismatic personality, um, and he had a lot of access to media, and so he had a lot of attention on him. And he had done really well in the previous election cycle, and so by 1996 – when Dick Lamb decided to run against him for the Reform Party, uh, on the Reform Party ticket, when we ran against him, we knew it was going to be an uphill battle, of course. But, um, but it was interesting. The process was interesting. And we made significant headway back, back then, uh, for the Reform Party. And from there, you know, you started to see, um, you started to see other Reform Party candidates across the state get elected. So yeah. um, that was kind of an interesting uh, – that was an interesting time. The Reform Party has since faded away, but um, 
but that was the closest we came in, at least in my lifetime, to having an actual third party that, that uh, could stand on its own. Yes. So what do you think happened with Ross Perot? Because he was doing well and then he dropped out. Do you think it was self-sabotage or what do you think was going on there? Well, it's self-sabotage, but there's also external pressures too. Um, there's an awful lot of pressure that comes on you at the presidential level. And when he talked about those threats against his daughter, those were not, uh, those were not made up, I'm sure. Um, and so it's, you, I always tell people the other thing you're going to do in politics, be careful what you wish for, because, um, sometimes you're in the game of power, and the game of power is a, um, it's a very different game than uh, anything else that you're accustomed to playing. Sure. So you see Ross Pro's his challenges was because people were were misusing power against him. Um, I, I think the reason is he imploded is that he wasn't ready to step into that role of leadership. I think he okay. I think he assumed that he was ready. He got onto the national stage, and that, that part of the game is very fun and exciting and enticing and energizing. Um, and then he came very, very close to actually winning that election. Yeah. And then you get a lot of pressure coming down on you from a lot of different levels. And um, I think at that point you're like, oh, boy. And I think I personally think, and this is just pure speculation, but I personally think that that pressure was so much he just said, I'm out of here. I don't think he was truly ready to go. And I'll never know. We'll never know what actually happened. Um, but from, you know, from my analysis, I just, here was a guy who had never governed before. He's yeah. good in the boardroom, but being good in a boardroom is not the same as being an elected official, period. Yeah. Um, and, and the two do not cross. Just because you're good at the board level does not mean you're going to be good in politics. That is an assumption that an Americans make over and over and over again, and it, they're repeatedly demonstrated that that is a falsehood. Um, governing is about collaboration. It is about working with people who do not share the same viewpoint that you do, do not believe the same thing you do, and yet you still have to figure out how to manage um, and govern a very diverse population. Sure. And that is that is never done from... I, I will tell you how it's done from the board board level down. It just doesn't work that way. Politics is not designed that way. Our founding fathers did not create a system that would allow for an authoritarian to dictate from the top down. That's that our entire system is very slow moving, which annoys a lot of people, but it's slow move, moving on purpose. And that is being tested right now, of course, at the presidential level, um, or at least it was over the last four years. But, um, previous four years, but but um, but the reality is the Founding Fathers were very smart in the mechanisms that they put in place to make the governing process go slow, uh, albeit it's frustrating, but it is, it's done on purpose. It was done on purpose. Okay. So, do you, so you don't see that, you don't see collaboration as necessary in the boardroom like it would be in politics, so you see them as, they're different governing models where would you see the boardroom as more anti-democratic? 100%. I mean, look, you know, if, I, if I'm running an agency, at the end of the day, if uh, if the agency is, let's just say I'm running a big company called Tesla, at the end of the day, I walk in there and my name is Elon Musk, 
what I say is pretty much what's going to happen, right? Okay. <laughs> um, if I walk into, as, as if I'm the president of the United States, and I walk into the room and I go to Congress and I say, here's what I want to happen. I got a whole bunch of people saying, yeah, guess what? <laughs> Good luck with that. So you don't have the same, those two skill sets are not identical and they're not transferable insofar as process goes. Huh. In a boardroom, in a boardroom, I select my board members. My board members are people, if I'm the CEO, right? Uh, if I'm the, the, the head of my organization, those board members are serving pretty much at my, at, at, uh, at, at, they're, they're basically serving me and I appointed them into those positions. And therefore, okay. yeah, I'm going to take their counsel, but at the end, that's the reason why I appoint those people, right? Is because I want their wise counsel. But at the end of the day, that decision is going to lie on the CEO, or the C, whoever's heading up that organization. That is not the case in politics. In politics, it is a system that is separated by powers, the legislative system, the judicial system, and the, the presidential system, the governor. The governing bodies are broken down, and they each have their own um, set of power, but they're always held in check by someone else. That's an interesting comparison against contrast. Yeah, 100%. But what we do is oftentimes we'll see somebody like a Ross Perot who does so extraordinarily well in business, has this huge empire that he governs and manages, if you will, um, and he comes and says, look, I can do this for you. Well, that's not the way it works in politics. You can't have a, somebody on a white horse that comes and says, I'll do this for you. It doesn't work that way. Uh-huh. Our system is not set up that way. Now, a dictatorship, they buy into that. But again, it never works out. Look at Mugabe. We talked about him earlier. Mugabe yeah. came along after their after their um, uh, their civil war. They elected him president. He came along and said, oh, I'll fix this. Well, you didn't fix it, bro. In fact, you trashed it. And you trashed it in such a way that just before your end, the country itself imploded. So it just doesn't ever work out that one man can come and solve all people's problems or one woman. It isn't – political systems aren't set up that way, and it is – you're just not going to find that. A corporate system might be set up that way. A corporate system might allow for one person to come in and have a lot of power and authority and be able to shape the destiny and the future of a company, a Bezos, if you will, uh, Bezonomics. He can come in and he can really influence the direction of that company, but that's very different than governing – and you, you're trying to manage a country or a state or a county or a city as a mayor. Sure. So it's it's two different models altogether. Makes sense. So how did you position Dick Land as different from Ross Perot? In what ways was his message different than Ross Perot's? Well, we did a <laughs> – our sort of thing was an R3. Now we're going way back in time here. Um, uh, but back then, we, we really focused on reform, renewal, and revitalization. Okay. So that was the, the three R's, if you will, that we ran on or that he ran on. And the biggest difference was Dick Lamb's ability to talk about public policy. Oh. The challenge that Ross Perot had is that he really couldn't talk about how do you, how do you actually bring about change whereas the governor had been doing this for multiple years, right? He was the longest-serving, oh. three-term-serving governor of Colorado. And so 
here you're you're you had a track record of being able to make things happen, whether it was in healthcare. Um, back then, believe it or not, we actually talked about immigration at length during that campaign, and we kept asking the question: How big do you want America to be? Um, should we have controls at the border? And that's a legitimate public policy question. The question then is, how do you manage that, right? We don't talk about that today. We talk about we should shut the borders down, but we don't talk about in a public policy sense what should that look like. How many people should we have coming in? Who should they be? How many per um, sort of economic, socioeconomic um, position do we want? In other words, do we want immigrants coming in that are just, refugees and people seeking asylum, or do we want people coming here, um, you know, through the education system and perhaps uh, bringing in some of the technological advances, et cetera. So we don't do much communication about that when it comes to immigration and public policy. Today, we did back in the 90s. We talked a lot about that. And the biggest question was, how big do you want your country to be? And the reason Dick Lamb was so good at that Governor Lamb back in the day is because the, he used to always ask the question, how big do you want Colorado to get? Back then, I mean, there were less than a million people in the state. It's wow. like now, holy cow, we watched it just explode. And now if you go to downtown Denver, it looks so different than what it looked like in the 90s. Um, you know, change happened. But the big question is, what did you? How, how do you want that change to take place? Do you want it to happen in a controlled, slow environment, or do you just want it to go crazy and just free for all? Everybody do anything, boom. Um, so, anyways, that was very interesting public policy debate. So, the biggest difference between he and Ross Perot back in those days, the way we positioned Governor Lamb, is he was the logical choice for this because he had much more experience in actually governing, whereas uh, whereas Ross Perot had zero experience governing. Sure, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, you viewed Ross Perot as someone who was mo- who could only speak from an abstract point of view as what could possibly get done, whereas your candidate did the stuff. Exactly, and and I mean, and you know, I've to be fair, I've only met Ross Perot the one time, so and I've never ever sat down and had public policy conversation. I almost knocked him over once. He wasn't real happy with me on stage in um, one of our debates. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the reality was the way in which we positioned it was that, that, uh, and we knew it was a long shot coming in. Of course, this was Ross Burrow's party, essentially. He's the guy who was paying the bills and he's the guy who really funded that whole reform, uh, process. So, um, and that whole party on a national level, he's the one who allowed it to become a party at the national level because he was running for president. And, and back then, I think, the, I can't remember exactly what it was, but you needed X number of votes in each state, X number of dollars, et cetera. Um, all of that happened because of Ross Bro. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. So you needed some kind of a charismatic personality that was that ebullient. And well, you get if you ever go back and watch him uh, on television, the guy was just funny, and he was good, and he was, yeah. this, he was this authoritarian personality that, boy, you listen to him, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, we need that. Finally, someone is going to come in and clean up Congress. And, okay. Um, cute. It's fun. It makes for great uh, It makes for great television, uh, but it would never work in reality. It's just that is not the way Congress, that is not the way governance happens. <laughs> 
So if somebody is like Ross Bro, where they have experience in business and they are getting itch to go for politics, would you would you advise business people to stay out of politics, or should they start at a local level? I, I mean, it totally depends. Um, and I get a lot of business people who do come to me. I always ask the question, why do you want to get into politics as opposed to being a business? Um, and, I, I, you know, you just don't know people's hearts. I, the reason I got into politics, the reason I wanted to be a state legislator, and then as at one time the governor kept saying, you should run for governor, blah, blah, blah. Um, I always thought that I could positively influence the quality of people's lives on a bigger scale if I were in an elected position. Uh-huh. But what I re- what I realized is that there's two sides of politics. There's the campaigning side and there's the governing side. There takes there's a certain skill set to campaigning and there's a certain skill set to, to governing, and those two sure. lines never used to cross. But then back in the 80s and the 90s in particular, we really started crossing that line with Newt Gingrich. Um, we started taking the battle field tactics that we used in campaigning and we started to apply those on the governing side and then what happened is you started and it wasn't just Newt right um, I spent a lot of time with Newt Gingrich during that whole time when he was a congressman and prior to him becoming speaker of the house um, we spent a lot of time and it, and it was just campaigning right you were just hammering the other side you were educating people you were really working hard to separate yourself and, and uh, messaging yourself as somebody very unique from the other side, right? Um, and we were you're fighting basically. You're, you're, it's a it's a it's a contact politics is a contact sport on the campaigning side. On the governing side, it shouldn't be that vitriolic. It shouldn't be that much of a contact sport. It should be more of how are we going to make this work. I've got, you know, if you live in California, what is it, 32 million people or whatever the number is in that state now. We've got 32 million bodies in this state. We've got X number of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars coming in in tax revenues. How do we apportion our dollars so that people have uh, safe streets, where we have streets that are drivable, where we have all of the things that government needs to do, the provisions that they need to provide for, how do we do that and serve all these people? That's governing. That's not campaigning. And okay. beating each other up and hammering each other across the aisle, that doesn't solve anything. Calling so each other names. Like... <laughs> I'm sorry? No, I was going to say calling each other names and fighting doesn't resolve the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem they have out there is how do we handle this many people in this limited space and get them from point A to point B without having to sit in traffic for four hours to drive two miles or whatever it is. So it sounds like every, transfer. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, you off. I was just going to say every state has its challenges, right? Every nation has their challenges. Yeah. But that's the difference. The difference between campaigning and governing used to be. I'd go and fight and fight and fight, and I love that on the campaigning side. When I got into the governing side, it wasn't – it's it's still fun, but it's not quite as fun for me. I liked the campaign side, and that's why wow. I sort of gravitated away from the governing and back into campaigning. I liked the fighting. Um, you know, an old kickboxer guy like me just enjoyed the jousting back and forth and the positioning and all the strategy that goes into it. It's like playing chess. The difference is you're playing chess with human bodies as opposed to as opposed to plastic pieces. <laughs> I think you have that self knowledge. Say again. 
it's good that you have that self knowledge that which oh, part you like best. Yeah, hundred percent. The whole the whole key there is to remind yourself. So at the end of the day, hopefully you're doing this. You're running for office. So you, your original question was, what do you say to the CEO who says I want to come in and, and serve? If you really truly want to serve, why? What are you looking to do? And then secondarily, um, are you willing to go through what you need to go through in order to get and be in that position where you think you can serve best? Um, and that's are you willing to go through the political campaign? That processes today are are pretty hardcore today. So some people might, if if they they might not want to go through the campaign process to get to that end because of how difficult it can be. 100%. The very first thing we do is, is opposition research. We start opposition research on my own candidate first. So if you came to me and said, hey, Sean, I want to run for office, the very thing I'm going to do is apple on you. I'm going to say, Andrew, let me just find out a little bit who you are, where you're from, what you've done in your background. I want to find out the ghosts in your closet. And then secondarily, I'm going to go and do opposition research on your opponent. I'm going to find out who are your opponents and what's their background, where are their where are their skeletons buried, right? We all have them, but I just want to go and find out. And that's, um, you know, a lot of people don't want to go through all that. that you know, you're bringing up stupidity. You know, we're all young at one point. We do stupid stuff. Now, today's yeah. day and age, it's all over the Internet, the stupid things you do, right? Yeah. And the, the person you were at 20 is not the person you're going to be at 40. But do you yeah. really want to go through the, that whole explaining of how, you know, in today's day and age with all the videos and everything else, if you did something stupid on video and somebody brings it out and they take a snippet of that and they start running it on national television or at least local television, do you want to deal with that? Uh, most people are like, yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. And not everybody has, you know, speckled pads, but the, but the reality is, look, life is life. And that, but that's what happens today, right? So, so campaign managers, we do opposition research and we're looking for anything and everything. That we can use sure. to to um, differentiate ourselves. This is the way we spend that. To differentiate ourselves from them. To contrast me versus their, my candidate versus their candidate. Exactly. Yeah, with cancer culture, that type of thing has only gotten worse. Where they people bring out the past. Oh man, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always been, but it's you know, with social media, like I said, the things you do now, it's, it, everything's electronic. Everything's captured. Yeah. So what stories do you have from the campaign trail that are either interesting, funny, or both? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, funny to me and interesting to me might be very boring to your listeners, so <laughs> I won't bore them with that. I mean, I've been blessed to really uh, to work at all levels, the one thing I will say. I've been blessed to work with, um, you know, my nephews and nieces running for office during during uh, their school years. Um and, and, you know, all the way up from people running from local politics all the way up to, to presidential. And to me, it's been a blessing. I, I truly enjoy it. I love the game of power. I started studying the game of power when I was young, and uh-huh. I've always been fascinated by that, and that's, I think, what has made me successful. And I've been sure. blessed to, to work with some really great people along the way. I've seen a lot of knuckleheads, too. But, um, uh-huh. you know, the most important piece that – I'm going to sort of come back to the thing you said. You probably have a bunch of people on here who are listening. They're young. They want to come up. 
and they want to get in and, and, you know, influence change at the local level or potentially at the national level, I always say start with where, where, where's your heart? Man? What, do you, what do you really want to do here? What, what is your intention? And okay. um, that's number one. And number two, if you think you have the ability to make a difference in someone's lives, and that is what you really want to do, go for it. I mean, the, the, the system needs good people. And they need you to step up and learn not only the process of how to win an election, that's, that's the campaigning side, but they need, the system needs people who are willing to learn about issues, understand public policy, and understand the nuances of how to affect change in order to create that change. And sometimes that means you're going to take a shit ton of bullets, arrows in the back, if you will. But, but, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it because you do care and you do want to see change. And okay. so so it's incumbent, it's vitally important that you learn about what it is you want to create change around. Don't just run as somebody who's like, hey, man, I'm good looking and I can speak well in public. Okay, great. That's That's wonderful. But we really need people who understand economic policy. I really need someone. If you're going to sit on, um, if you're going to sit on an energy board, I need you to understand public policy as it relates to energy, as it relates to whether it's nuclear or wind or whatever, whether it's water coming off of the dams and the energy that that creates. You have to understand that in order to help future generations. They are relying upon our public officials to have some level of expertise that's above and beyond just the common crap that you read in newspapers and what you see on a five-minute video on YouTube. You've got to educate yourself. Public, wa- sure. public policy as it relates to water, as an example. There are, water only originates in certain states, right? And so those states have rights to that water that other people don't have. But huh. then you also have hereditary rights for Indian nations, and you also have government rights, and you have a lot of different people laying claim to water. And so water rights, it's going to become a huge issue as the as the world keeps heating up and as we use more and more water for various reasons and as that water supply dwindles. And so water rights in particular, it, it, it takes a long time to become an expert in water rights. And so if you're, you know, and this may not be an interest to anybody, but if it is an interest to you and you do feel like you have something to contribute, believe me, public policy, uh, that's a vitally important part of public policy. And it's, 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 it's not as easy to say, oh, we'll just privatize it. Mm, no, no, better be careful. There's a lot of countries that have done that, and look what happened to them. Okay. So, so it's important for you if you're running, and I'm now talking to your voter, you know, your listeners. If you're going to run for office, make sure that you differentiate yourself in such a way that you can make a difference in a positive difference in the quality of people's lives. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so if someone is hearing your message today and they do indeed want to make a difference in people's lives, how do they find a political consultant? What's the best way to do that? Well, I mean, you have them in your party system, and you certainly have them locally. Um so I mean that's probably a good place to start. Okay. Uh, I get a lot of I get a lot of people. I used to get a lot of people. I'm not as public out there with my political stuff now as I used to be. But I'd always get people from other parties reaching out. 
Um, and I'm okay. You know, again, I always come back to what – you have to be careful in, pol- in, in party politics, right? You may have your own platform that you want to run on, but the party has its own platform. And when you become elected by way of one party, you basically committed yourself to that party line and that party platform. Oh. And so you have to be very careful about this. But the reality is uh, there are some areas that you can deviate from the party position on certain issues, and you can actually speak against the party. But that doesn't happen very often anymore. Now you oftentimes see at the governing level, usually both at state level and at the national level, most elected officials vote the party line. And um, that's a bit of a challenge, too. Um, and so sometimes if you're running for office, especially if you're an outsider and you're not you're, you're trying to re- run as a reformist or a Green Party or whatever, um, you're going to have problems when you get in there to govern because there are two coalitions in the governing side as well, and you are going to have to align yourself with one or the other party. And so you're going to adopt their a platform to a certain extent as soon as you become a member of that party. And you can try. There have been one or two people in the state legislative histories and the state legislative bodies and in the national that have sort of acted as an independent, but uh, at the end of the day, they've got a caucus with someone. And once you caucus with either the Democrat or the Republican Party, you're basically assuming um, the majority of the votes that they're going to they're going to run with, you're going to assume that. So, you know, if somebody is running, coming back to your question, locally and they want to get elected, again, identify with which party you're going to, uh, you're going to run through. And then there are people like myself in all the different parties um, that are out there. You can find them, um, consultants. And, you know, it, it, it behooves you to take the time to find them, uh, interview them, find out what do they know? What do they do? How much do they charge? And what are they? What are you going to get for the services that they charge um, from them? And so, you know, one of the things that I've always attempted to do is I've always had my candidates do a lot of homework, and okay. I want them to do a lot of homework because Andrew, if you're going to run, I want you to, you know, I'm going to ask you those tough questions. What makes you different? What separates you? What's your um, existing database that you can tap into? Who are the top donors in your community, right? We're going to identify your if, – if you're going to run for office, you're going to need about 250 people, depending on the office that you're running for. You're going to need about 250 – 200 and 250 people to donate to your cause. Who are those people? Who should they be based on what you want to do? So all of those kind of questions – are things that you have to write down, and then once you've identified that, okay, now let's go identify those 250 people that you need to pick up a phone and call and meet with, and now let's start the process of going out and talking to people and meeting those people in particular because those are the people that are going to help you get your message out. In campaigning, right, you've got to have the right person running for office, hopefully at the right time, and that means the right time in your particular community. They've got to have the right message, to appeal to the voters. They've got to have the right targeted message that they're, uh, the audience that they're talking to. Remember earlier I said you're never campaigning to everybody. You're only talking to your voters, and hopefully you're talking through your analysis to enough voters to get you to 50 plus one, as we used to say, um, enough voters to win, right? 
So yeah. um, those are the people that you're appealing to during your campaign, and you need the right message sequenced at the right time during the process, and all of that takes money, the right amount of money. You need a lot of money in today's day and age to run for office. And so you've yeah. got to have a lot of donors behind you pitching in. Okay. There's a lot of right things you got to get right. <laughs> you got to get it right, man. Yeah, and it's worth it, though. I mean, if you really love, you know, so, so I mean, I know I've harshed on a lot of stuff, but you really can influence the quality of people's lives. They'll never know that you did, but you'll know that you did. Um, so from that journey, it's fun if you stay focused on it. There's a lot of paths you can deviate, and there's a lot of things you get to do along the way that are fun, um, some not so fun, you know, you know but, but in terms of satisfaction and a certain um, – there, there's still nobility in politics, I truly believe, and there's still um, an amount of satisfaction that you get uh, knowing that you've accomplished a job, you've worked hard, and you've positively influenced people's lives, even though they don't know it. And they may not see it. They'll feel it. They'll feel the ramifications of the good that you've done, but you'll know it. And that's, at the end of the day, you'll feel proud of the fact that, yes, I did this. I helped accomplish this. I worked with these people to make this happen, and this influenced these people's lives. So from that standpoint, if you're that kind of a person, you're willing to go through that, and you're you're looking for that, politics is a great way to make that happen. All right. Sean, we thank you for coming on the podcast today and talking about your experience and knowledge that you've developed over the years with working on campaigns and in politics in general. For sure, Andrew. I so much appreciate your time today. And, and again, I just want to say thanks for having me on the show. And hopefully I've been able to part a little bit of wisdom and some fun, at least, for, <laughs> for your listeners. Yes, from my end, it sounds like you did, and I trust the listeners will feel the same way. Appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you very much. All right. Wish you all the best in everything you Thank do. Thank you. Thank Bye you. Now. You too. Bye-bye for now.